Welcome to the Pokes Podcast, the official podcast of the College of Arts and Sciences here at Oklahoma State University. I'm Carla Gutierrez, Coordinator of Prospective Student Services with CAS. Today, I am joined by Dr. Francisco Beltran, an assistant professor in the History Department. Dr. Beltran's area of expertise focuses around the civil rights movement and the involvement of Spanish-speaking communities. The civil rights movement mainly took place during the 1950s and 60s with the aim to gain equal rights for all under the law in the United States. So Dr. Beltran, tell us a little bit about you. Where are you from? Any hobbies? I'm originally from San Diego, California. My family uh, immigrated from Mexico during the 1960s and 1970s. Now, I grew up in a predominantly uh, Mexican-American uh, community called Barrio Logan near downtown San Diego. And it is through my experiences uh, growing up there that I began to become interested in learning, well, first about the history of Mexico. And then as I moved along through my educational years, the, the experiences, the, the many voices uh, within the ethnic Mexican and ultimately the larger uh, Spanish-speaking Latinx community in, in the U.S. And a lot of that interest stemmed from not seeing those voices in the uh, classes that I took in my in my K through 12 uh, years, it would only be in passing. Maybe a quick reference to, you know, maybe Cesar Chavez and the United Farm Workers Union. Maybe a little bit of a reference about, you know, the Mexican Revolution, some of the impact that that had across the border in in the United States. But it was always very much in footnotes, not a central part of the traditional story of the United States. And what really struck me, even as a, as a kid growing up uh, in, in San Diego, is that every day to go to school, I would have to go through a community park uh, called Chicano Park. Uh, Chicano Park is this park that was established in the 1970s by the community over the lack of cultural representation and social representation in, in the city. And one of the unique fe uh, features of this park is that it is completely under the freeway overpasses. So uh, community uh, members, uh, activists uh, decided to make that park uh, be close to the community by painting murals that captured the history of Spanish-speaking people in general, capturing their experiences in, in San Diego to show that you know, Mexican-American history is U.S. history. So what really, uh, one of the earliest questions that I had was, I'm being told in school, or I'm not being told in school about Mexican-American history. The little that I am being told is usually in a very negative uh, way, using a lot of stereotypes, but yet every single day to go to school and to come back home, I go through this park that tells me a completely different story. It's saying that I should be proud of my culture and my heritage and of my community. So that inherent contra that contradiction is what drove my own interest in learning about history and ultimately to learn more about my own community's history, which I am now doing in a book that I'm writing about the many different social and political movements of the Mexican-American community in San Diego. Awesome. That's, that's, that's a great story. So now you mentioned how quiet are the voices of Spanish-speaking communities in general and like I, I think based on my experience, like people of color in general, like 
our voices are quiet during the K through 12 education. How about your undergraduate years? Is that where it's your undergraduate in history? Is that how you, was that your major? So I actually began as a, a community college as a major in Chicano Chicano studies. And it was actually there where I began to learn a more in-depth account of Mexican-American history, not just of their larger uh, connection to, to the Southwest, their deep roots that extend beyond uh, what, what later would become the United States, but a little bit more of the local history. So I learned more about the story of Chicano Park, uh, for instance. I learned about the anti-war movement of the 1960s and 70s. And given that San Diego is a very big uh, Navy town, it's, you know, it's one of the largest uh, military uh, cities in the country, that generated a lot of anti-war sentiment, specifically during the 60s and, and, and the 1970s. I learned about movements for immigrant justice and for immigration uh, reform. So San Diego, it, it, these classes allowed me to see just how central places like San Diego are to telling a more inclusive and at time more complex account of U.S. history. You know, it shows that you know, the, the country's history has many voices, it's had many participants, and some of those stories can be you know, challenge what we know about the United States, but we shouldn't avoid learning about them. We shouldn't think that they are not part of history just because they may contradict you know, some things that, that we believe, but it only enriches our understanding of who we are as a people, as a nation, but also helps us to you know, become much more uh, adept at you know, working in a multicultural, diverse society. How long have you been teaching? I've been teaching for about 11 years. I started when I was a teaching assistant uh, back in my graduate uh, school years, but as a professor now, it's I'm coming up on five years. And now that you're a professor here at OSU and you just mentioned that you're writing a book and I know you had plenty of publications already as well with articles. Can you tell us a little bit of how research looks like for the humanities, like for a department like history? So for me, because I, my research is focused on a more contemporary uh, period, contemporary when thinking about you know, the long years of, of history, I'm able to actually speak to individuals who are part of making history. In this case, the men and women who participated in the social justice movements of the 1960s and, and 1970s. These were individuals who were involved in multiple struggles for farm worker rights, for workers' rights, for uh, better access to higher education, quality education to end racism and race-based segregation that continued in many parts of California and the Southwest into the 70s and, and into the uh, 1980s. And the way that I engage with learning about these histories is by conducting oral history uh, interviews. It's one of the most uh, important ways that we can bring a human dimension to the studying and the learning of the past. Because through uh, these conversations across generations, we're able to you know, uh, see exactly you know, what was it like to be a part of the United States at those critical moments in time. And now there are some um, challenges sometimes when conducting oral history. A person's memory may not be uh, as good given that we're talking about events that happened 50 plus uh, years ago, but it's still a good way to see how people remember those moments, even in the, the way that their body might react 
to a specific question or in this case um, I would show them articles in my interviews I would show uh, uh, former participants in community newspapers like articles that they wrote 50 years ago to, to oh, probe wow. their memory a little bit like what was it like uh, when you were writing this piece like what what led you to think about this issue in this particular way or what was it like working you know p- trying to put together a newspaper oftentimes without you know adequate funding often having to rely on the support of the community to keep the uh, the newspaper afloat but also you know given the fact that doing a newspaper was not a full-time job as many of these uh, uh, participants were college students at the time so they were going to class many of them had to work they had you know some of them had families so they were leading a very busy life so just being able to learn about just the everyday activities and life back then it adds a very humanizing aspect to the learning of history. It moves us beyond just learning about names, dates, events. Of course, that is important to have a good understanding of what came first, what followed. But really, my focus as, as a teacher and as a researcher is to bring attention to the human experience and what can that teach us about you know, being in the United States, you know, how, do, how do different communities see the United States, and how can some of those lessons of the past not help us in present day conversation on numerous issues. And all of these accounts or at least some of these accounts are part of your book. It's that what led to your book to your upcoming book? Uh, yes. So I have one previous publication. Uh, it's a co-authored piece with uh, two colleagues uh, of mine that looks at immigration history, but through the lens of race and ethnicity to see the impact that racial ideas, that you know, the impact of, of, of racism, racism had on the shaping of immigration policies, views towards immigrants, but also on the generational experiences of different immigrant groups. And actually, the the book that I'm working on uh, right now it it's both uh, it's actually a, t- a project that that fulfills two things for me uh, number one it's something that I'm really passionate and interested about because it is my hometown and who doesn't want to have write about their hometown yeah. and to show like yeah things happen and their here. own community exactly yeah, yeah. And, and the second is to show that. There's much more to learn about in the case of Mexican-American, uh, Chicana, Chicano, Chicanx history than what we know so far. And San Diego is one of the places w- that hasn't received a lot of attention when looking at the larger story of Mexican-American civil rights movements of the 60s and 70s. A lot of the attention often goes to places like Los Angeles or to states like Texas, where uh, you know, they had these very large Spanish-speaking ethnic Mexican populations. There was a lot of visible mobilization. And attention usually gets drawn uh, to those places where like numbers tend to uh, tell uh, like a very important story. Not to say that they're not important stories, but you know, it's also important to know that things happen in other parts of, of the Southwest or in other regions of the country. Like, If we study them and we learn about them, what can they add to our understanding of Mexican-American history? But most importantly, you know, how does it help us better see uh, Mexican-American and Latinx history in general as U.S. history? Are a lot of the oral histories and the interviews that you're conducting in Spanish, or is there a mix of both English and Spanish? 
there's actually uh, the majority were conducted in in, in English, uh, but there were instances where we would switch in between from English yeah, to Spanish, Spanish. <laughs> and sometimes some Spanglish. A lot of it depended on how my interviewees would recall a specific instance in, in their life or if there was a specific um, chant or maybe a sign that they help write or an article, something. And it reveals a lot also about how generation, well, from one generation to another, how they see themselves, how do they define their identity, you know, how do they use culture to define their own definition of what is, what is it like to be an American during this particular moment in time. So it leads to a better uh, understanding of like those uh, those generational coming togethers. And language, it's a big part of yeah. of one's identity. Mm-hmm. And I was recently reading, I'm a Spanish, native Spanish speaker myself, and I was recently reading that memories are tied to your language. So it makes sense that sometimes it will just go back and things will come out in Spanish mm-hmm. if that's how they lived it. That's amazing. That, that sounds very interesting. I, like, I'm looking forward to reading your book. Can you expand on what is your research focus right now? So in general, I'm a U.S. historian, but specifically I focus on Mexican-American Latinx history, but I also uh, look at the intersections with other areas of of U.S. history, such as immigration, uh, borderlands, Latin America, and, and oral histories. So I'm specifically interested in, or one of the, I should say one of the main interest that I've had uh, that very much has guided the different type of research that I've done over the years is how do individual communities express themselves, but also how do they place themselves within the narrative of the United States. So I did that a lot when updating my first co-authored book uh, titled Almost All Aliens, now looking at how communities of immigrant descent that are you know, a few generations uh, removed, how did they define their identity as Americans of you know, Mexican descent or Guatemalan uh, descent, Cuban uh, descent? You know, how do they place themselves as history makers? How did they lead movements to push back against uh, ideas, against currents that vilify them, that you know, really do not understand the full picture of the history of Spanish-speaking uh, communities in in the U.S. So, based on your research and then like the title of your previous book, the one that you co-authored, mm-hmm. what can you tell us about the word "alien" when it comes to legal documents, like for immigrants? It's like you get your alien number when you're going through the immigration process. The yes, the uh, the the term uh, "aliens" you know has a long uh, history and has been used in uh, different times against different groups of, of people, beginning with uh, you know, immigrants from China during the late 19th century, but it was also applied to uh, refugees from Eastern and Southern Europe uh, in the lead up to and after World War One. It has been, in more recent times, been associated specifically with immigrants from Mexico and from Central, Central America and all of Latin America uh, as well. The, the term itself you know, carries a very a specific uh, idea that those who are uh, labeled by it somehow are completely foreign 
to the United States. It, it, it does have a dehumanizing uh, feature uh, to it that it, for many uh, people, you know, they are, it robs them of their humanity. It sees them as completely different, almost like taking away their story, who they are to just become a specific number or a specific you know, point in a long data set that talks about uh, immigration. So it is a term that has you know, roots in numerous anti-immigrant uh, currents and views, that, but it's important to see that it all uh, is connected by these larger ideas that shape or that you know, go back and forth between saying who is an American, who can be an American at this point, do they have the desired you know, qualities, cultural qualities, do they possess the, uh, the ability to contribute to, to society. Uh, so it ha- it's a very powerful term, but it, at its core, it is one that is rooted in a history of nativism and, and xenophobia. And from the people that you have interviewed, what kind of repercussions has this term have in their identities as Americans and as part of U.S. history now? For, so many of the people that I interviewed were actually born in, in the United States, but many were engaged or participated, I should say, in movement for immigrant rights, specifically during the 1970s when there was an increase in migrations from, from Mexico. And a lot of it uh, stemmed from the challenges that the Mexican government was having at the time with its economy and you know, just the larger recession that, that uh, affected the world during the 1970s and, and the 1980s. So for, for many of them, their fight to be, for, for immigrant communities specifically, their fight to be seen as human beings as, and not as threats, not as these you know, foreign entities, you know, began with first uh, clarifying who they were. No, they are undocumented immigrants. They're undocumented uh, people. By doing that, yes, you are recognizing that they've, they've come into the country without you know, proper documentation, but you're also not robbing them of their humanity. You're recognizing these are individuals that are affected by a number of political, economic uh, circumstances, many of which are not through any fault of their own. No, they just happen to be affected by decisions that are made elsewhere and that ultimately no, go on to affect the most vulnerable, the poor, indigenous communities, the working class, no, communities of different racial and ethnic uh, backgrounds. And like you said earlier, like the dehumanizing part like mm-hmm. of the word alien. So when people migrate to the United States, a lot of the times it's for circumstances that were we're completely out of their hands mm-hmm. and then they get here and they become aliens they become the foreigner the other mm-hmm. so that it is very important to note yeah so to go focus in one of those specific history movements when we talk about civil rights movement a lot of the conversation centers on black americans mm-hmm. whose histories are very very important and not um not to minimize them at all but the voices of the Hispanic, Latinx communities, the Spanish-speaking communities are constantly erased from this movement. And I know that's what you, your research focuses on. 
So what can you tell us about those Spanish-speaking voices during the civil rights movement? No, it's actually uh, when I teach my, my classes, specifically uh, the intro to U.S. history class. So when we get to the uh, sections on the civil rights era, now many students, you know, they come in with a general understanding of the civil rights movement. They can identify individuals you know, like Martin Luther King, uh, Rosa Parks, uh, Malcolm X, uh, the Black Panthers, uh, just to name a few. And... I tell them they're an important part of, of the story, but they're not the total story. The, the way that I frame it is that the black uh, power, not, excuse me, not, well, black power came much later, but the black freedom struggle, the larger African-American civil rights uh, movement actually helped ignite and inspire other communities of racial and ethnic uh, background to mobilize for civil rights, for equality, but doing so or uh, working on their own histories you know, based on the struggles that they faced as individuals communities, but there were oftentimes instances where there were alliances across racial lines because groups such as African Americans and Mexican Americans, for example, they suffered from similar uh, sources of inequality, such as access to better quality schools or being able to enjoy access to voting without any form of barriers or uh, exclusionary uh, tactics that, that, that were created. So the, the, the larger African-American freedom movement you know, inspired groups such as Mexican-Americans, such as Puerto Ricans, to organize amongst themselves. Many of them you know, would work with existing entities within their communities you know, or establish relations with you know, larger political uh, entities as a form of trying to advance their community's uh, goals, you know, have access, you know, funds to uh, support the construction of health clinics, for instance, to uh, provide uh, assistance programs to those who are more economically uh, vulnerable, just to name a few uh, examples. But the Mexican-American Chicana-Chicano movement, as it came to, to be known, at many times, or most of the time, would organize on the fact that people of Spanish-speaking background had deep roots in the U.S. that predated the establishment of the United States. You know, for, for instance, people who could trace their family's lineage in the Southwest in places like New Mexico or Arizona, they could say, our family has been living in this plot of land uh, before, for almost 200 years before the establishment of the United States. And many of them you know, can trace uh, not only the uh, uh, their roots back to, back to Mexico, but to Spain, and also back to the indigenous communities that continue to live in those, in those regions. So they were able to use that history as a way to educate the larger Spanish-speaking community at to say, look, you are a part of this country. And this was actually one of the most important tools that was used to counter uh, uh, labels such as the term alien. Say, like, why are you calling our community by that name? Why are you referring to people of that co- of, of our particular ethnic culture by that name when in fact we have a very long history in this region? Now we are part of the original communities that inhabited this this region. 
So knowing this history, many communities would then organize using their history, their culture as a source of empowerment to mobilize for better schools, to call on the construction of community centers to help youth, to help the elderly, to create uh, uplift programs, after-school programs, programs to help uh, women. So there were numerous ways that history allowed for the creation of a cohesive unit. Not to say that there weren't some tensions in it. There were. No, no uh, social movement, no uh, social justice movement is ever perfect. No, it's or smooth. It's exactly. So it, it did have its tensions. It did have its conflicts, as all movements uh, do. But it did allow for Mexican Americans and others of Latinx background to show that they were part of the United States. They were going to fight not only to improve their community, but also other communities who were affected. So just to give you a, a quick example. There were hundreds, if not thousands, of students across the Southwest that walked out of their classes in the 60s and 70s. Now, Mexican-Americans uh, for generations you know, fought against uh, Jim Crow segregation, specifically as it was practiced in schools. So Jim Crow in, in the Southwest not only targeted African-Americans, but it also targeted Spanish-speaking communities. There were signs that were created uh, that said specifically uh, no Mexicans allowed in this in particular public spaces such as theaters or po- swimming pools. So Mexican-Americans uh, were at the forefront of, even though segregation had been defeated, or had been struck down by the Supreme Court in the 1950s, there were still many school districts that continued practicing a form of de facto segregation, not by law, but by practice. They continued to do so. So students decided, you know what? We've waited for, for elected officials to step in and to address the unequal educational experiences that you know, we are receiving. Um, there's no action coming from the government, so we might have to take matters into our own hands. So what do we do? We walk out of classes. And students knew what they were, they were doing because they understood that many schools would receive funding based on the attendance figures. So if they walked out of their classes, nobody was going to school funding was going to go down. So they were trying to put pressure on school boards to come and meet with students, but also with parents and community members who wanted to say, we want the way that that education is imparted to our children to be equal to that of others. Many uh, teachers into the 1960s were operated under the assumption that uh, students of you know, uh, Mexican descent or of other uh, Latin American background, that they were behind in their studies because of their culture, because they hadn't assimilated. They hadn't become white Americans. So they needed to let go of their culture. They needed to let go of who they were as individuals and as a community. And many you know, continued to use that idea into the 60s and 70s. They didn't provide any uh, mentoring or counseling services. They didn't encourage students to seek higher education, but would push them into vocational studies, very much to use their hands uh, to pursue you know, to pursue their future rather than use their mind. If they were doing really good in school, rather than encouraging them, oh, here's a scholarship that you can apply to. Here's a really good school that you can go to. It's like, no, you, it, that's uh, that's something that's not it's not good for you. It's not going to provide you with anything. Like you're better off not working, you know, in this in this profession right here. It's going to provide a more, you know, economically sustainable. So 
the Chicano movement, just that one example shows how Mexican-Americans were pushing back against the longer history of unequal education. And in the South, that's very important because of the whole territory treaty, the um, Santana uh, Treaty, when Texas was part of Mexico and then it became part of the U.S. Mm-hmm. So going back to what you were saying was of people saying my family's roots have always been here. So there's a lot of people in Texas that they are Mexican-American, they are of Mexican descent, but the U.S. came to them. They didn't come to the U.S. And they were still being segregated and their voices were still being erased. Exactly. And because uh, the, the treaty that you were referring to specifically had clauses that said you know, Mexican families that continued to live in the territories that were ceded by Mexico to the U.S. following the uh, U.S.-Mexico War, that they would be extended legal rights, that they would be extended citizenship rights. So many Mexican-Americans would often, during the 60s and 70s, would turn to that treaty to say, from the start, we've had these rights. And these rights over generations have not been respected, they've been eroded, and we've been turned into a second-class group of citizens. So that document uh, was used a lot, was referenced by many Mexican-American communities to push for full citizenship rights because it had been promised by the United States. However, that promise over time was completely uh, uh, lost support and was not completely fulfilled. I didn't know that part about the treaty that there, that there was that clause I had about being becoming a full citizen. I I didn't know that. What do you think the civil rights movement meant, or how did it translated to now the creation of the panethnic identities of the um, Hispanic and Latin communities? Because like you gave the example of like segregation with signs saying. Mexicans are not allowed, and there is a misconception or, like, people tend to point and say Mexicans. Like, we're we're not all Mexicans. There's people from Guatemala. There's people from Salvador. Like, there's all of these very rich cultures all throughout Latin America. So how did that civil rights movement translate it to the visibility of all of these other Latin American communities? That actually, uh, your question uh, goes back to one of the earlier points that I made about uh, expanding the history of of the civil rights movement or of Mexican-American history by looking at different locations. And one of the things that uh, I've learned over the years in doing research and just in general in, in my education is that a civil rights movement or a community was more so defined by the dynamics on the ground than by the national currents or national trends of of a given uh, social justice uh, movement. Just to give you a a quick example, um, in places like Chicago, where uh, the civil rights movement, the civil rights movement there, how it developed looked a little bit different than places like uh, Los Angeles, where there was a much larger ethnic Mexican population. In places like Chicago, while there were there was a substantial population of Mexican descent, there was also a substantial population of Puerto Rican descent. And these communities not only lived side by side, because oftentimes they were uh, 
not allowed to live in specific re parts of the city because of housing covenants and restrictions on housing based on, on the color of your skin or the language that, that you spoke. So they often live together with African-Americans, but also uh, working class uh, white uh, families who were descendants of Eastern and Southern European uh, immigrants. So in places like that, a civil rights struggle would often more closely follow the long history of collaboration and of working together rather than embracing a specific ideology, say like Chicano cultural nationalism, which guided Mexican-American activism, but did not really apply to a place like Chicago, where if it had been followed exactly as in other places, it could have led to you know, sources of tension or even the breaking of specific uh, relations across multi across uh, racial or, or ethnic lines. So places, uh, numerous places where there is a cons uh, a larger concentration of other ethnic uh, Latinx uh, communities, such from Guatemala or El Salvador, you know, it became much more advantageous and it made much more sense to to come together as one pan-ethnic community. Not to say that you couldn't borrow some elements from uh, these larger ideologies, but more often than not, how a specific uh, uh, community of Latinx background or a, uh, a, a group of Latinx background uh, pursued civil rights often was defined by the community relations on the ground. You get you see that in you know you would you would be able to see that in places like Los Angeles later in the 1980s specifically when you had a massive uh, arrival of refugees that were fleeing the civil wars from Guatemala, El Salvador, and, and Nicaragua. Now they came into a predominantly you know ethnic Mexican city. Los Angeles often referred to as the second Mexico City, you know, the largest uh, concentration. concentration outside of Mexico City. But in the 1980s, you know, it, there was a much bigger population, there was a population boom of Latinx community of Central American background. And in many cases, that helped form a much more cohesive pan-Latino unit. And it made a lot of sense for communities to come together because now, after the civil rights movements, there were a number of movements that pushed back against the gains made by uh, racial and ethnic minorities, uh, women, the LGBTQ plus uh, community. So it made a lot of sense for then for people of Spanish-speaking backgrounds to can fight together to keep these you know, achievements that had been uh, uh, done during the 60s and 70s, but also to expand them, to, to recognize the fact that one idea can help us, but it's not necessarily the full solution. It might offer us a starting point, and then we have to be conscious of who is in our community. Now, how can we be inclusive and welcoming of different communities to then f continue the fight for educational justice, for immigrant rights, among other, other things? So in the 70s and the 80s, you began to see you know, the formation of a, of a larger pan-ethnic community uh, across, the, across the United States. And then that led to the emergence of different identity uh, markers. Uh, you know, has started with Hispanic, then moved on to Latino, Latina, Latino, and today we have uh, Latinx. Earlier you mentioned the uh, Mexican-American or Chicano movement what is the difference between being Mexican-American and being Chicano 
versus being Hispanic versus being Latino or Latine or Latinx. Mm -hmm. What are these different differences in the language on ident identity language, really? The way that I, I, I approach it in, in my research and also in, in my teaching is that a, an individual or a community's uh, identity, especially how they project it, is a reflection of their own social and political conditions or aspirations at a given moment in time. Just uh, to give you a, a quick example, in the 1960s, there were individuals of ethnic Mexican background um, who referred to themselves as Mexican-Americans. And then there were others who referred to themselves as Chicano, if they were male, Chicana, if they were a female. So then I'll, I usually get the question in class, like, what is, what is the difference be, be, between the two? You know, can the terms be interchangeable? And it, it's, a, it's, a very, uh, it's, it's a question that I always look forward to from, from my students because it offers an opportunity to have a conversation about the importance of language as a way to understand how a community's history, but also the power of naming, specifically of self-naming in, in opposition to uh, you know, impose labels from, from society. By the 1960s, uh, younger uh, ethnic Mexican uh, ethnic Mexican Americans, and I use that uh, term broadly, uh, would look at the label Mexican American and say that is a label that implied assimilation into white America, that you needed to shed a little bit of your cultural uh, heritage and become something else, and it didn't mean that you would completely distance yourself from your uh, ethnic Mexican roots. But it, for many younger uh, uh, people, and I'm talking about high school age and college age uh, ethnic Mexicans, they came to see that term as you know, something that was associated with their parents, with their grandparents. Like, we only got so far using that term. We need to change who we are. We need to assert ourselves, assert our community's history and place in the United States. So many of them turn to the word Chicana and Chicana, which is actually a word that it has its origins in Mexico, but was rediscovered by you know, younger uh, community members in the 60s and used as a way to define themselves while honoring their long history, their connections to the indigenous communities of the Western uh, hemisphere. And in that regard, it is similar to how African Americans, many of them began to embrace the word black. They would they reclaim a word that had been used to vilify them, to otherize them, to see them as a second class group and say, we shouldn't be um, uh, ashamed of, it uh, ashamed of, of our history, of our culture. You know, being black is beautiful. That was the chant of what would become the black power movement. Well, you know, people of Mexican background, ethnic Mexican background, you know, were inspired by that and say, you know what? Being brown is beautiful. Being a Chicano or a Chicana is a beautiful thing. I shouldn't be ashamed about hiding who I am, about speaking Spanish in public. If I want to honor the traditions of my parents, of my grandparents, no, I should be able to do that without feeling any sense of shame or to be afraid of how uh, society might look at me, how they're going to judge me, how they're going to see me. Uh, are they going to question whether or not I'm an American if, if I were to follow my own culture and, and tradition? So the words themselves represent uh, 
a time uh, a time period in larger Mexican American history. I, I mean, both terms are still used today, but when you look at their origins, they were born in specific historical moments. And the term Mexican American began to be used quite a lot during the 1930s, 20s, 30s, especially in the 1940s, um, to combat uh, views that Mexican people were you know, not here. They weren't real Americans. You know, part of it a result of the depression fueling xenophobic and nativist uh, movements, but also to say, look, we've contributed to defending the country during World War II were Americans of Mexican descent. Were. So it has also a history similar to the word uh, Chicano. And Chicano was more of a, we're going to continue fighting for equality and for full rights, but we're going to change how we do it. We're going to be much more uh, direct in our actions. Rather than working with the system, we want to shake up the system really. No, really, we want uh, substantial change to come. So it wasn't necessarily that it was a, a, a radical movement or a detachment. No, those who identified as Mexican-American or as Chicano or Chicano, they fought for the same things. It's just how they approached securing that goal what was different. It was often based on political ideology, but that doesn't mean that there, were, there weren't instances where they could work together for a common goal. And again, it came back to where were they living? And did it make sense for them to work together rather than pursue different social uh, platforms? So a way to reclaiming your identity as you know it, not as society knows your identity. So that, that, that's, exactly. that's great. Um, recently in pop culture, I've heard a lot the term 200 percenter. It goes with the idea of what you were seeing of Mexican-American of I am Mexican, but I'm, I'm also American. And it was this sort of like half and half idea. And now I've been hearing the 200 percenter uh, term because people of Mexican descent and some other um, Hispanic or Latin communities, that the sentiment behind it is I'm not half and half. I'm 100 percent Mexican and I'm also 100 percent American because they're both my cultures, they're, it's, they're both my countries, they're both, I know both languages, I know, so this idea of like, I don't have to divide myself, I can be 100% one and also 100% the other, and, and I love that, I love that, again, it's now, now based on what you're saying, it's another way of reclaiming that, that identity, I don't have to shed half of me to become this other thing or be a part of, is I can be just completely who I am, which, becomes a 200%. So I, I love that idea. It's actually the first time that I've, I've heard of that uh, concept, but no, it, it makes sense. And this is uh, something that other communities ha have gone through. Uh, when you look at, you know, especially communities of different racial and ethnic uh, backgrounds, if, you know, several groups have faced the pressures and challenges uh, of a society that tells them you need to act this way, you need to participate in, in, in this way, you can't be fully expressive in, in, in that way, otherwise it's, it, it's not really who we are as, as a people or, or, or as, a, as a nation. And questions about how to define one's ethnic identity uh, have, are a central part 
of, of Latinx history. And it's often been the, uh, the route that informs how communities mobilize, how communities you know, build themselves. How do they interact with others across, uh, across ethnic lines or within uh, ethnic uh, lines? Well, thank you so much for sharing your knowledge. It's been amazing to chat with you and learn a little bit more about the history of Spanish-speaking communities within the U.S., um, learning a little bit more of the background on where these terms come from, what these movements meant for our communities. Is there anything else that you would like to add as we celebrate the Hispanic Heritage Month with our CAST community? Uh, well, thank you very much, uh, Carla, for, for inviting me. It was a pleasure has, uh, uh, having this conversation uh, with you. And if there's one last thing to add is, you know, I was just past weekend, I went to the uh, Latino uh, festival, community festival that is in, in Oklahoma City. And I think just by you know, coming from Southern California, I know it's primarily a community that was the majority of Spanish speakers were of Mexican uh, background. But now you know, having the opportunity to live here in Oklahoma to learn more about the experiences of Latinx communities here, being able to attend the festival and to see the wide uh, uh, spectrum of ethnic community identities within uh, Oklahoma. Uh, shows just how rich and diverse Latinx uh, history is and how much more we still have to learn from. And it's really exciting to be in a place where there's so much uh, ethnic uh, diversity when it comes to the Latinx uh, community. So I'm very much looking forward to continuing to learn from uh, the community. That is it for this episode of the Pogues podcast. Thanks to Dr. Beltran for joining me today on the show. Be sure to follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter with the handle at OKStateCast. Thanks for listening, and as always, go Pokes!